Well, as the masses leave, um, before I get into the sermon, I want to welcome uh, one of the joys of, <laughs> it's funny to say, one of the joys of COVID um, has been that we have um, had to use online technology. And one of the great blessings of our online technology is that a lot of our missionaries who are in other parts of the world have been able to track along with us, whether it's in children and youth ministries or even our Sunday services. Um, this morning, though, we have uh, two or three of our missionary families who are here with us. Um, you can't see them if you're not watching online, so just trust me. Uh, but the books are here. Chris and Marlis, I don't know if you want to wave. So I welcome you back. Um, the Cordova's in here, over there. Jen and Hona and Pam, and I think Abigail's also with us, too. So we want to just welcome you guys. Um, hopefully you have been tracking. I think you have. I'm just kidding. Um, but it's good to have you with us. I think that is one of the joy and the blessings is that our church extends not only here in our Harrisburg region, but to our world. And so you represent not only us, but again, our Father. And we're so proud of you, and we're so glad that you're able to worship with us this morning. Um, this morning is 4th of July. Look at you, you're such good Anabaptist. I'm so proud of you. you know? <laughs> I mean, they were ready. They're like, this is a setup. This is a setup, right? Man, you messed up my whole joke. I got to recalibrate on the spot. Right. So on 4th of July, we remember life, liberty, democracy, and the pursuit of happiness. But as good Anabaptists, you know, I know in every family there's one. I'm trusting it's not you. Um, trusting it's not your picnic this afternoon or tomorrow. But in every family, there's one who just takes 4th of July a little too far, right? Where they have the 4th of July shirt, pants, underwear, socks, right? Where, like, there's flags all over the place, right? And if they don't just love America. They love 4th of July, right? There, there oh, he is. Yes, there's, there's one. I told you there's one in every family. Now, imagine, not Steve. But I want you to use your, your, your spiritual imagination, right? Imagine this person who so loves America, right? And America is the greatest thing ever. Now just imagine they happen to invite someone to their house. We'll just call him Hank, right? And imagine Hank is sitting with this person who loves America. And the person's like, God bless America. And Hank is like, well, I mean, America's kind of just like an empire. You know, I see Rome, you know? And they're like, well, no, America's about life. And, and Hank is like, well, I mean, life for who? You know, like, who's all getting this life? They're like, liberty and freedom. Yeah, again, Thomas Jefferson owned people while he wrote that. Like, what is it that we're celebrating? I think that's important, not just to remember our Anabaptist roots. And not just to say, oh, America isn't great. Because America is great in its own way. But America, like every great empire, is for the empire of America. And we, the children of the kingdom must be for our Father's kingdom. Amen. And it's good to appreciate the liberty that we have. There's Christians around the world who can't do what we're doing this morning. There's Christians around the world who to, to say, I believe in Jesus, or to gather in belief and faith in Jesus is a death sentence. So we can celebrate the goodness and, 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 and some of the liberty that America affords us, but not at the expense of forgetting our Father's kingdom. And we must be able to hold on to this national narrative that we have, but not let it supersede Jesus' story. And I think when you think about Stephen, as we dive into Stephen's story this morning, you will see this national narrative that was happening among Jewish people right after Jesus resurrected. They had symbols. You would call them flags. They had buildings. You would call them Liberty Bells or White Houses. They had the land that they thought was the best in all the world. They had all these things that we have too. Yet Stephen boldly proclaimed the kingdom. And I think if he can boldly proclaim the kingdom, even unto death, it's a reminder to us that while we can celebrate the good things, we must never sacrifice 
the great thing that is our Jesus Christ. Amen. The great thing that is our kingdom. That yes, God bless America, but there's 196 other countries too that God desires to bless. And what I love about the story of Stephen, it's just a reminder that God has always planned for the world. So while we celebrate our freedoms today, and we remember the Christians around the world who don't have such freedoms. And while we celebrate our country today, may we never forget we're only strangers even here. Because our citizenship is forever in heaven. Amen. 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 Our Father God, we thank you so much for Stephen and his story. We thank you so much for the early church and this opportunity to look at what they had to learn together back then. For with the lessons you taught them through the life and ministry and witness of Stephen, Lord, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to feel, give us legs to move, give us hands to work. For your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God most high, the God of glory, may our lives be lives of glory to you. May we serve not our countries we're from, but the, not our empires we're in, but the kingdom of heaven. May we bow down not to the symbols of man, but to Jesus Christ. And may we live not by the story our nation tells, but by the story you call us to tell, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. In his holy and precious name we pray. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's kind of hard to pray when you close your eyes and you miss the mic. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, it's a pretty lengthy portion. So when we look at the, the story of Stephen, we actually find it in Acts 6, 7, and the beginning of 8. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the end of 6, the end of 7, into 8, 3. So if you're following along, I'll be at um, Acts 6, 8 to 15, and then we'll also go 7, 54 to 8, 3. Um, again, I'd like to invite you this week to actually read all three chapters, Acts 6, 7, and 8, because I think there's, a, there's so much in the story, and I'm not even going to, I'm just going to scratch the surface of most of it, but I invite you to read it, maybe every day this week, because I think there's so much nuance here that can help us. Um, starting at verse 8, we were introduced to Stephen again this way. Now Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from many members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But he could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then down to, to verse 54 in chapter 7. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, this is after Stephen has given his speech, which we'll, we'll talk about his sermon. And so after his sermon, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this sermon, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. In Jerusalem, and, and all the except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. <laughs> going from house to house, he began to destroy the church. He began to destroy the church. <laughs> going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. The clips are not cooperating. So when we meet Stephen in Acts chapter 6, I think it's important to tell his whole story. A lot of us know Stephen as the first martyr, the first one who died for his faith. But I think there's so much more in his life that I think helps us to know how he not only got to that point, but his entire significance. The first thing we meet and we, we, we hear about Stephen is actually in the beginning of, of Acts chapter 6. And Stephen is actually called a man who's full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. So the first Stephen that we meet is actually Stephen the deacon. Stephen is, is chosen, you know, the, the, the early church is, is called the sharing church. And we know in Acts 2, they sold everything and they gathered together and they served the Lord, right? They sold everything in Acts 4 and they gathered together and they served the Lord. But here's the thing. If you've ever grown up in a family with more than one child, you know that when the second child comes along and the third child comes along, like, things change. Things shift. That piece of bread that you got or that dessert you got might need to be split in two. And I think what's interesting is that even though this was a group of people who were the sharing church, you read time and time again in Acts about the church growing and growing and adding to the number. And so what we have here in the early church, this church that we kind of idealized, like they were all united, were they? Because in Acts chapter 6, you see the schism. And the schism is actually between what I like to call humbly Jews, right? Like the people who were in Palestine never left, they were there. And then we had diaspora Jews, right? Or Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews who either had spread out throughout the known world at the time. Because remember on the day of Pentecost, they would all come back to Jerusalem. In these festivals, they would all come back to Jerusalem. But something else was happening. And now you might have to use your imagination on this, right? Because we don't think our land is holy and special. But they thought their land was holy and special. They really thought that God only worked in America. I mean, God only worked in Israel. Like, they really thought that's where God was. So people would go far away into the ends of the world. And then they would come back to die in Israel. Because God was, this land was so holy, we got to protect it at all costs. I know that, we don't do that anymore, right? But we got to protect it at all costs. But these widows were left behind by these selfish husbands who would come back because they wanted to die in Israel. So they would leave their families in parts of Africa, parts of Asia, parts of even Europe, where the diaspora had spread out, and they would die, and they were left behind. Now, it's very interesting because Greek culture liked charity, but it was just something that you could choose to do. Jewish culture, the ones who actually followed the scriptures, knew that God called us to what? To love the orphan, the widows, and the strangers. But here comes the tension. Because even in this united church, and this should remind us too and open our eyes, even in the church at the very beginning, the schism is that they started leaving behind the Greek-speaking widows. When they would divide the food, they went to what I would call the Palestinian Jews, the Jew-Jews, first. And these Palestinian widows who were in another country with their husbands who had died on were being left hungry. And so the church recognized this. And so the apostle says, listen, our work, what God has called us to do is to preach the gospel, is to pray and to lead the church. 
And there's this line where when I was a kid, I was just like, man, these guys seem really proud, right? They're like, we ain't going to serve. We ain't going to hold. What do we need us hold serving tables? That's not our job, right? But I've grown to see, and this really hit my spirit this week, that for those of us who preach the word, yeah, God calls us to be servant leaders too. But I think what the apostles are saying is that there is work that we all can do. If there's something, there's a need in the church. It shouldn't fall back on the quote-unquote apostles or the pastors. It falls on the church. And it's up to the church to rise up and meet that need together. Because they said our primary job is to pray and to soak in scripture and to lead this movement. Your primary job is to do the serving too. So when they gather this group together, they pick seven people, Hellenistic Jews, full of spirit, full of wisdom. The apostles gather them, they bless them like we did the youth this morning, and they pray for them, right? And after they pray for them, here's what I love about that passage, the entire church is pleased. There was a need, there was a schism, there was a break, there was things that could have ripped them apart, but they give it to God. They trusted the spirit, they looked to God for leadership, and they gathered together to serve. So when we meet Stephen, his job is not only a man full of spirit, but he's helping lead this food drive, this food pantry, to make sure widows were fed. And the church starts to grow again. And what I love about this, I think usually when it says the church grow, they say they add it to the numbers. But this passage actually says the number of disciples grow. There's a difference between adding to your number and actually being a disciple. There's a difference between saying, I believe in Jesus and actually following Jesus. Amen. And I love that when they start to serve, when they said our differences, yeah, they exist. But if we unite in Christ together as one family, people grow in their faith. It's the disciples that grow, even priests. And that's important because you'll see what Stephen thinks about priests and temple. So even the priests are able to look on the outside and join the church. So we meet Stephen, the deacon. The next passage, which we read in 8 to 15, we read Stephen, the scholar. Here he's full of God's grace and power. He's helping one of the seven, and he's leading the food drive for these widows. But he's also performing signs and wonders. God is also using him as a healer and a teacher. And every time we've seen an act so far, what are the apostles doing? They're going to the temple to preach. The temple to the Jews. What is Stephen doing? He's going to the temples of the Hellenistic Jews. That's incredible to me. Because we think Stephen's a young man. We think he's a young person. And we, the pros, were going to the temple because we thought that's who God's called us to. But Stephen, as a Hellenistic Jew, and we've been saying this for weeks, right? All of us have people, and God calls us to go to our people. That's what he does. And he goes into these Greek Jews, and he's debating them. And what I love about the fact that he's debating them is that they all know they can't win. I debate a lot of people, not even, like, because I try to, you know? I'll say something, and then they say something back, and I'm just like, ugh, how did we get here, you know? But I want that reputation of Stephen where just like, yeah, don't even talk to Stephen. He wins all the time. <laughs> because God is with him. Because God has given him wisdom. God has given him power. So even when this opposition rises up, they're able to disagree with him, but still see God's wisdom in him. So they change their tactics. And if they can't beat him in debate, if they can't beat him in theology, if they can't beat him in understanding what it means to follow God, they just lie on him. And they accuse him of four great sins, really. They said, look at this Stephen. He's desecrating the temple. Our national symbol, he just doesn't hold dear. 
Look at this, Stephen. He wants to change the law that Moses gave us. He doesn't even believe the law of God. Look at this, Stephen. He doesn't think our land of Israel is holy. How dare he not think we are God's chosen people? Look at this, Stephen. He doesn't even understand our Jewish and national identity. Look at this, Stephen. You know, they call Stephen the first martyr. But I like to think Stephen might just be the first Anabaptist. <laughs> That's just me. But this charge is all undergirded by this simple truth. Look at this Stephen. He's blaspheming God. He doesn't believe the God we believe in. And even when they make this charge against him, I don't know if you've ever been charged with something you're innocent of. But most of us, when we're charged with something we're innocent of, there's a rage that rises up inside of us. And those of us who grew up with siblings were like, I can tell you all the things I've been charged when I was innocent of, right? <laughs> most of the time, the people around you didn't see an angelic glow on your face. But I think it speaks to the character of Stephen. That when they charge him with something that they can kill him with, and something they're going to kill him with, God still showed you can still see God's on his face. And it makes me wonder how they can lie on him, how they can you know, threaten to kill him and, and now drag him before the Sanhedrin and still acknowledge that God is on his face. And that becomes the story of martyrs and people who died for the faith from ages upon ages upon ages. So we meet Stephen the deacon who's serving. We meet Stephen the scholar who's full of God. And then we get to this sermon. And I used to say that Paul's sermon is probably the most important sermon, or Peter's sermon is the most important sermon because it's on the day of Pentecost and, and 3,000 people are saved and the church goes out. But I think Stephen has a shout. I think Stephen has a claim. Because in this sermon, Stephen is going to take the story that's been passed down, the national narrative, and say, listen, you have missed the mark. He's going to take everything they know and flip it on its head. And he's going to say, listen, it's not just about the story that our nation tells. It's not just about the story that your family tells. It's not even just about you and your story, which I think speaks to our culture, because we say, your story matters the most. And Stephen is going to say, no, it's not what America says or what Israel says. It's not what your family says, not even what your church says. It's what Jesus has revealed. And it's finding that sweet spot where your spirit and God's story meets. And that's what he tries to do. So he starts with Abraham. And remember, they charged him against going against the temple, the law, the holiness of the land, and Jewish identity. So where does he start? He starts with Abraham, and he says, listen, Abraham's our father, and he's not even a Jew. And they're like, wait, what? He's like, yeah. Remember, Abraham is from Mesopotamia. And not only is he not a Jew, when God finally got him to the promised land, it took us 400 years to get in there. So you think this land is holy. What about the land that God called them in? Is that holy? What about the 400 years of traveling? Is that holy? And he's making the point that it's not the land that you stand on. It's where God is that's holy. And I think that's an important point because it's not the way you're born. It's not who you know. It's where God is. So he's saying in the front of the Sanhedrin to the Jew of all Jews, and he says, you think your land is holy. It's not. Where God is, where God is, that's where it's holy. And if even our father Abraham isn't a Jew, why are you uplifting this national identity like it's something special? He's from Mesopotamia. 
It took them 400 years for our descendants to even, or our ancestors, to even get to the promised land. And then he moves on to Joseph. Another one that they would have, they would have again, elevated. And he's like, well, here's the interesting thing about Joseph. Most of us are descendants from the people who actually sold Joseph. Most of us are, are descendants from the people who actually gave him away. But God revealed himself to Joseph in Egypt. So again, it's not this land that you think is so holy of holy, because that's where God revealed himself. That's where God worked with Joseph. That's where God even exalted Joseph was in Egypt, where he was a slave, where he was in prison, where he was lied on. But also where God exalted him to be second in power. And where God used him to do what? To save us. It's not the land that's holy. It's not even we the people that's holy. It's God who's holy and God working through us. And then he gets the Moses and the law. And you can see the scholars probably fidgeting back and forth because here's the thing. Up until this point, they can't argue against them. They can't get up and be like, well, actually, Abraham was really a Jew. He wasn't. He's from Mesopotamia. They can't get up and be like, God didn't exalt Joseph in Egypt. No, no, he did. They couldn't even argue that we sold Joseph. Like our ancestors are more from the, 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 the leaven who sold him. They couldn't argue any of this. When he gets to Moses, you can see their knives starting to sharpen. You can see them maybe sitting up in their seats because they're like, well, how are you going to twist this one? And the interesting thing that he says here is that Moses was used by God in a foreign land, just like Joseph was. That Moses was given not an Israelite education. We think he got that from Jacobet and his mom. But Moses is given the best of this world. And God made him the perfect person who could straddle Egypt and Israel, who could understand Israelite culture and also Egyptian culture, who could understand what it meant to be God's people, but what it meant to have power and oppression. And God chose to, to meet Moses there. And he goes through the story where like Moses thought, I will try to deliver you by, by breaking up this fight and killing a man. And I thought that's what the deliverance was. And when Moses shows up the next day, remember what they said to him? was like, who made you our judge, right? So Moses runs away. And then Stephen reminds us again that for 40 years, he's in the wilderness. And God shows up. And you know the burning bush story, right? The bush is burning, but not quite burning. And he goes down. What does God say? Take off your shoes. Why? And you are on holy ground. It's not Israel that's holy I think we the church need to hear that. It's not Israel that's holy. It's God who's holy. It's where God is that's holy. If the burning bush is holy, remember that's where God is. And Egypt is only a tool of God. And at this point, they're like, well, what is he going with this? Because right now we still can't argue anything he's saying. And then he gets to Jesus. He says, just like Moses Jesus was the deliverer. The word he used for deliverance actually also means salvation in the Hebrew and the Greek. Jesus, the deliverer, came like Moses, the deliverer, yet you rejected him. Jesus did signs and wonders, like Moses did signs and wonders, yet you rejected him. You rejected him by choosing your national symbols, your flags and your white houses, your temples and your land. You rejected him by choosing the idols instead of choosing Jesus. And then Stephen makes, everyone gets to the stiff-necked and angry people. But before that, Stephen makes, I think he's the only one in scripture to make this accusation against Israel. I think the prophets do. I think Amos and maybe Isaiah talk about it. But Stephen does in the New Testament. He says, listen, here's the thing about y'all. 
God was your God. God brought you out of Egypt. God saved you. God was taking you to the promised land. But not only was God giving you manna in the morning, leading you by fire and the cloud, but even in the midst of God working, you chose idols. And Stephen doesn't just talk about the golden calf. He says you actually worshipped other deities while you were in the wilderness. Now think about that for a second. This is the time that the Jews would have held this like, ah, we were following God and we were doing great and we were so faithful. And Stephen says, you weren't even faithful to God when he was giving you manna every day. You weren't even faithful to God after he saved you out of the, the slavery of Egypt. You weren't even faithful to God after Moses, your Moses, that you want to lift up the law. When he went up on a mountain, what did you do? You built an idol. Stephen makes this accusation that you as a people have always chosen idols over God. So when you say, I don't value the temple, it's because God desires to be the holiness. When you say, I don't value the land, it's because God is where God is, that's where it's holy. And where God's people are, that's where God's land is. And when you say, I don't value my Jewish identity, you're right. Because my Jewish identity is choosing idols over Jesus. And I choose Jesus. And then he makes that closing statement. He says, the temple, as you know it, it's not central to God's plans. And later on in the New Testament theology, we learn that we are now in the temples of the Holy Spirit. He says, the, the land, as you know it, it's not even central to God's plans either. And if you look at the history of the church, we've had the center of the church be in Jerusalem, Antioch, Rome, Alexandria. And even right now in the world, most of the Christians in the world are where? In the global south. The center of the church always moves because it's not any land that's holy. It's not Israel that's holy. It's not America that's holy. It's where God is that's holy. And then he says, you oppose God's real leaders. You've opposed the prophets. You've opposed the apostles. You've even opposed Jesus Christ. And you call me a heretic. But in actuality... I'm the one who's faithful. And you're the heretics for choosing your national symbols, your national religions, your temple over our God. Now you can see why they're a little angry. And you can see why they would actually go against Roman law. Because Roman law says that you as a Jew are under Roman occupation. Which means that you as a Jew cannot execute capital punishment. But Stephen says they're heretics. They don't believe in God. They don't follow God. They've actually made an idol and a mockery of God. And, and you have to understand, this is the greatest sin that you can call on the people. And he says, no, you've done this forever. He's not just accusing them, but their generations of our generations of our generations are following their idols instead of God. So they go over a Roman law. The rage is, is, is at least to rip off their clothes, to, to drive them out of the town and to stone him. But then we have a story that so many other martyrs have told. Where heaven, you know, we know there's a spiritual realm all around us, right? But we're so blinded by the world we see that we can't see that spiritual realm. And sometimes you hear these stories of the martyrs where when they're in between heaven and earth, and I think it's a great irony because the temple was supposed to worship, represent what? That the in-between of heaven and earth. And yet they made it an idol. Yet Stephen in his faith stands in between heaven and earth, giving us a picture of how we can be a picture of Jesus because how we can be the temples of the Holy Spirit by standing between heaven and earth. And he looks up and he sees Jesus. 
And he looks up and he sees the angels. And even though there's stones being pelted at him, Stephen prays for their forgiveness. N.T. Wright says this, you don't have to know everything about Stephen's story. You don't even have to know everything about Christianity. But you have to understand this, that Jews were martyred before. And every time they were martyred, it was usually by Rome or an occupying power. Every time they were martyred, they would say something like, my ancestors will get you back and we will kill you. Stephen, when he's martyred, he remembers his Jesus, who says, love your enemies is not just a suggestion. Love your enemies is a critical part of who we are and what we are to believe. So as they're throwing stones at his head, hurling them down this hill, hitting him, he says, Father, do not hold this sin against them. And Luke, like a great storyteller, reminds him there's another young man in the audience by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And he looks at this martyrdom of Stephen, and he approves of it. And what's also interesting is that before Jesus left, he told the church what? You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, yes, but in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But so far in the story, where has the church been? In Jerusalem. They haven't listened to their Jesus. They've only focused on their people. And yet after Stephen's death, after persecution comes, the church is scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And our African brother Tertullian said what? The blood of Christians is the seed. And it doesn't mean that when we die, people automatically believe. Remember, martyr means witness. So it does mean that when we witness for God, by giving him our lives, even unto death. The world sees, the world notices, the church grows. And I think it's also interesting that as Saul is seeking to destroy the church, he's jailing men and women. If you were a prosecutor, or if you were a persecutor, and you were trying to put away all the rebel rousers, you'd be strategic about who you jail. And I think it's interesting that Luke wants to point out that as he's jailing Christian leaders, it's not just men that he's jailing. A reminder to us that even in the very beginning, God had a place for women, not only in leadership, but God had a place in women telling the story. And that's why Saul is jailing even women. So what do we want to hold on to? Because there's a lot in this story. I just want to give you a couple things. I think the first one that we learned from the life of Stephen is that he was called to be a deacon. And yeah, we have a church, we have deacons. I think of them as like our first response team, right? Like they try to keep up with you, what's going on. And if you're interested in being a deacon, you're a member, please talk to us. And then we'd love you to be a deacon in the church officially. But the lesson from Stephen is that we're all called to be deacons, meaning that all of us are going to be in places between heaven and earth. We're going to be in relationships with people who have needs that need to be met. And the call here is to serve. Because it's so easy to keep overlooking the overlooked. But the call of the Christians is to find where that need is and see how we can gather to help. The second thing I think we learned from Stephen is that we have to learn from God. We have to learn from God. Stephen doesn't just become a scholar overnight. He poured himself into scriptures. He submitted to the Holy Spirit. He poured himself into the apostles' teaching. If you want to grow in Christ, you got to spend time with Christ. Amen. It seems very simple. If you want to learn more about God, you got to learn to listen to God. It's not osmosis. It takes time. It takes intentionality. But that's what we have to do. 
The third thing, though, is that God calls us, us to witness and to tell our story, yes. Our world's going to tell you that your story matters the most. But my grandma or one of my, maybe my grand's aunt, one of the matriarchs of my family used to say this to me as a boy. That I want you to remember that history is his story. And I was a kid, you know, I was a smart aleck. I know you got to use your imagination to imagine that, right? And I'm just like, this lady really think that God is making the English language broke it down just so she could tell me this, right? Because every time she saw me, she told me history is his story. And here I am 30 years later, keep telling that message. Because history is God's story. So while our world's going to tell you your story, your truth matters the most, Scripture, the Spirit, and Jesus is going to tell you, no, my story matters the most. And the work that you have to do is submit to me and figure out where your story and my story meets. Because when you figure out that happy medium, that's how your world is changed. Because you can tell my story, but if you don't include your own, you might miss me. You might miss them. You can tell your story, but if you don't include me, you might miss me. You might miss them. It's finding that happy medium with where does your story meet with God's story and telling it to your world. And the last thing I think for all of us is this reminder, especially this 4th of July, that there's so many good things that can become idols for us. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of freedom can become an idol. Being an American, just like being an Israelite back then, can become an idol. <laughs> Celebrating the good things and, and only focusing on the good things can become an idol. We are called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful. I think part of that faithfulness, for those of us who may not be persecuted like the children of God across the world, part of that faithfulness is learning their stories and learning their sufferings. As Pastor Woody prayed, whether you're praying for Syria or praying for Nigeria or Somalia or Yemen, whether you're praying for places in the Middle East, places in Africa, it's your job to know their stories because they're reliant to not only God, but your prayers and your support. If you're living in a life without persecution, you're still a member of this body of Christ. Amen. So when they suffer, you should be suffering too. So it's not just about celebrating our freedoms, it's praying for freedom for them. That's what faithfulness can mean. I want to invite up the worship team as we're going to end by singing this song, Yes, I Will. I'd like to also invite up pastors if you're in the room, well, room. if you're in the park, um, we're going to be up here for prayer. If you need prayer for anything that's going on, please come up, we'd love to pray for you. But as we sing this song about Yes, I Will, May we be reminded that the freedom that God gives us is not just freedom for us. Just like the blessing he gives us, just like the gifts he gives us, every single thing God gives us is for the kingdom. So the work of Stephen is not just to get to a point where you'll do anything, including giving your life to God, but it's asking God, how am I today giving my life to you? Let's stand and sing together and pray together. Thank you.
Sometimes Brett, who is a young Anabaptist uh, martyr, um, he is actually in Martyr's Mirror. For those of you who are like Anabaptist to the core, you read that for fun, right? Um, but in Martyr's Mirror, it tells the story. And the reason this, I wanted to share this story is because he reminded me of Stephen. You know, like Stephen, he was a deacon. Um, we don't know much about his father, except his father was from England, and he wasn't around. So we assume that his, his mom was probably a widow, and he was his mom's only provider. Um, as he became a Christian and grew into faith, he also became a scholar. People would come to him and say, what is this thing about believers' baptism? Tell us about it. Um, but then his story actually goes very downhill after that. You know, the, 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 the authorities, the quote-unquote Christian authorities come, they seize him, and they jail him. And, and his witness is that he wrote these letters back and forth. He wrote letters trying to encourage the church. I think it's incredible that this man was being tortured for his faith. Tortured for saying, I believe in Jesus, and I made a chance to follow Jesus, and he's still writing to encourage the people left behind. And in his story, when he's actually killed at the stake, they do something with his mouth that I don't want to talk too much about because it's terrifying, but it basically made it impossible for him to speak because they didn't want him to keep witnessing so that people would believe. Yet he bowed his head. And it kind of reminds me of Stephen where I think he also saw heaven. And he prayed, and I think he prayed for forgiveness for those who were even torturing him. And I wanted to close with that story. Because I think it's important for us to remember that being a Christian isn't just a decision that you've made to follow Jesus. Being a Christian means that Hans Brett is your brother, just like Stephen is your brother. Being a Christian means that the Christians around the world who are suffering are your family who are suffering too. So the challenge to all of us is, how can we be faithful to them? Not just to look like Jesus and live like Stephen who looked like Jesus, but how can we be faithful to them? Our Father God, we thank you so much for the blessing of following you. We pray now for our sisters and brothers around the world where to follow you is to leave all that they know. To, to take that step forward in belief or in baptism is to leave all that they know. And it's, it's to sacrifice life here on earth. God, help us to learn their stories. Help us to tell their stories. Help us to learn what's going on with them and help us to support them through prayer, support them in any way that we can. But God, help all of us to know that while it's easy to choose idols, help us to choose Jesus. While it's easy to choose countries, help us to choose the kingdom. While it's easy to choose symbols and national narratives and stories, help us to choose Jesus and the gospel. And while it's easy to center life on ourselves and Nehemiah, help us to choose submission to you and lives for our brothers and sisters. In your holy and precious name, amen. God bless you all.